Hello, and welcome to None of the Above. My name is Steve Nemirovsky, and I'm your host. None of the Above is a political program. We're a little different than other political programs because we're very, very narrow in concept here. We talk about why the political system is dysfunctional. We talk about why the political system is polarized. And in each show, we try and talk about solutions. Now, now my pet solution that I've written about, and for those of you who have seen my third-party uh, series of books, is I think we need an effective and competitive third political party. And I think until we get that, we're going to remain uh, polarized, we're going to remain dysfunctional. Today we're talking in the second part of a conversation with Professor Bernard Thomas from Valdosta State University. He's written a terrific new book called The Demise and Rebirth of American Third Parties. The Demise and Rebirth of American Third Parties. And in our first show, uh, we're a little professorial in tone, a little analytical. Uh, we worked through some of his data which showed periods in the United States when we had rather robust third party movements how that died down early in the uh, 20s, 1920s, so to speak, um, but how that's been revived of late. And in the book, he dr drills down to, to kind of disabuse us of notions of why you can't have a third party. People say you, you can't have a third party you know, because of the nature of the American system. You can't have it because ballot access laws. You can't have it um, uh, because uh, you get co-opted. You can't have it because uh, you need fusion. And he talks about why he disabuses of these notions of why you can't have it. Well, what we're going to do in this next interview is talk about why you can have it, why a third party could actually have its ascendancy in our country right now, and perhaps how we can get there. And again, you know this is right in my wheelhouse, so I'm going to stop talking, and we're going to jump right back in here with Professor Bernard Thomas. Bernard, welcome to the show again. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we're going to we'll be a little more conversational this time, a little less professorial. Uh, but again, my, my viewers are good students. They're, they're, they're willing to learn. So wherever you need to, uh, to bring us uh, back. So in the first show, we talked about why certain theories are not accurate in the context of why you can't have third parties. My take is that there, there are some impediments, though, to third parties. And uh, if, I, if I understand your theory correctly, the major impediment is just it's, they're competing for resources. And it's just too hard for them to, to capture these resources. Right, right. I mean, to, to, to add a little bit to that, it, I think that, that the, the middle of the 20th century was just a really bad time for third parties. And it was a situation where the Democrats and the Republicans were actually really moderate parties. You could barely tell the two apart. There really wasn't an incentive for people to vote for third parties. I mean, I don't talk about this in the book, but it, I wouldn't be surprised. It's really hard to measure this, but I wouldn't be surprised. You know, the, the, the period after World War II and in the middle of the Cold War, well, third parties, they're like the Nazis, they're like the communists, you can't possibly vote for them. There was a lot going against third parties, and those things have been disappearing. So that is our, our one of the, the factors, but the other one, which is probably the one that's more interesting to talk about uh, right now or where you're leading is things changed in American politics around then that were also making it really hard for third parties and that's related to resources and money and the way campaigns are run. And my point is those things are changing again. So circumstances continue to change and now opportunities are growing but third parties have to grab those opportunities. They're not just going to land in their laps. Right. And one of the things you talk about, again, was this, this resource deprivation, so to speak. And when you're talking resources, you're talking not just 
financial resources. You're talking about exposure to the media, right? That third, yeah. third parties historically have not gotten the right amount of attention from the media either. Right, not in the middle of the century. When it, in the, if you go back to the 1890s, 1910s, yeah, they did because they were publishing their own newspapers. But once it was TV, radio, uh, these big commercial newspapers, they just shut the third parties out. It was, you're a minor and we're trying to make everyone happy, so we're going to pretend you don't exist. So it was a very hard situation for third parties. And we're going to talk about how that's overcomable, but another shift that occurred that I hadn't thought about much before, and you write about, is this notion of that we started electing people, not parties. Right. So walk, work us through that a little bit. Okay. So what happened was, starting around uh, the 1960s, uh, people, they started doing what was called uh, candidate-centered campaigning. So if you watch campaigns today, what you see is people running as, vote for me, I I've, I've grew up in this area, I'm going to fight those fat cats in, um, in Washington because I'm an outsider. You know, somebody's been there 20 years but pretends to be an outsider. This is kind of a, you know, vote for me as an individual. And the thing about that strategy is if you're the incumbent, that's great because what happens is you get to shield yourself from all kinds of things. That's number one. And number two, it costs a lot of money to run that way because you're, you're, you're advertising so much, you're buying so many spots. And that's part of what makes it so hard for even other major party candidates to challenge incumbents usually because, well, you know, I don't like Congress, but, but Joe over here, oh, he's been from our community for so long, I'll vote for him. So they just keep winning re-election. And, and it's really hard for third parties. I mean, consider, major, consider that major party candidates in Congress easily spend over something like uh, a million, million and a half dollars per campaign. And the uh, third parties, you're talking about them, their candidates spending, if they're lucky, $10,000. This is an absolutely impossible situation for third parties. Right. And I had, what I hadn't thought about before was, one, this notion that we'd gone from party-centric to individual-centric. Oh, I've read some about that. But I hadn't thought about before, as you said, how, how much that ratchets up the cost of running. And that, that's yeah. a very interesting, <laughs> yeah, very, inter very interesting connection that you made there. So, so resources is always going to be problematic, but in a minute we're going to talk about maybe how you can overcome that. But what you start to paint in the book is a picture of scenarios in which third parties can flourish. And there's a couple things you point out, one of which is one of the, the central theme of this show, a polarized environment. In a polarized environment, creates opportunity for third parties. So right now we're incredibly polarized. So according to your theory, that means we should be getting to a point where third parties should be able to gain more traction. Right. I mean, anytime you have a situation, uh, there's a couple of reasons why. One of them is because of the amount of contention that's in the system. People, you know, when you see it's, I mean, the major area of polarization that we have evidence for is between the Democratic and Republican politicians. That's where it's really intense, much more so than even in the public. But what that also creates is a situation where, where people, many people, uh, get frustrated. If you have, yet again, now there's threats of a government shutdown. Uh, every time we have uh, some major policy area coming forward, it becomes in the interest of the major parties to dig in their heels. Because if the party out of power 
lets the major party, the other party, win something, then they'll lose. So they're better off just messing up the system. So this is a really, a really nasty situation, but it also produces the kind of frustration that people have that lead them to becoming more open to third parties. This is a global thing, not necessarily the polarization part, but the discontent part. You know, we're seeing third parties, what we could consider consistent with third parties, rising globally. So this is not just the United States. Uh, whenever you have this level of contention, people are more likely to vote for third parties. Let's add to that, let's say you're a Republican and you dislike Donald Trump. You really dislike Donald Trump. Uh, you're still probably not going to vote Democratic, or you're less likely to if you're at least in a polarized world. And so it starts becoming where, let's say, the Libertarian Party can become more attractive to you. So it this entire polarization situation creates an opportunity for third parties because of um, because of how discontent people can become with it, and because. You know, it, it gives them fewer major party options. So I, I'm glad you brought up the discontent part, because that's why my show talks about polarization and dysfunction. I've been in government politics for 30-some years, and I've been in scenarios where the people running government were incredibly polarized in terms of their approach to politics, liberal and conservative, but they could always get in the room and solve a problem. We have polarization now, but we can't get in the room and solve any problems. So it's a combination of the two. Right. It was. It used to be Democrats and Republicans sat down and solved things. You know, they they even as they started separating ideologically, right? The the, the famous Ronald Reagan Tip O'Neill relationship, right. two very different people. They sat down. They worked uh, worked out compromises. Compromises are much much less like, likely to happen now, and that produces a lot of frustration. Right. We've lost that. Now, the other interesting uh, fact or pattern, whatever you want to call it, you point in your book, that has been linked to the rise and success of third parties is when we have uh, income, income inequality or, or mo more, more excessive income inequality in our country. So tie that back to your theories. Well, it, it, what seems to be going, it goes back again to the discontent aspect of, of what's driving things. If... if if you go back again to the 1950s, suddenly you have this middle class um, society opening up. You have um, a situation where anybody who wants to find a job basically can get a job. Not that life was perfect in the 50s, but there wasn't that same level of, of contention. Starting around the 1970s, suddenly you have a situation where where people are starting to struggle more people are getting upset more about things and rightly so you know they're they're working harder it started working harder for the same income now it's becoming working harder for for even less this again is the kind of thing that leads people to look for alternative parties to vote for i was wondering if you uh dug any deeper on this concept because i was thinking about the fact that we've had rising income inequality, at least that's what the, the, you know, the, the professors and theorists will tell us. Uh, does that create more dissatisfaction coming off a Democratic presidential term, as we just had with Obama? Because people might say, well, at least if I get a Democrat in office, they're going to fix it. 
But if they get in office and don't fix it, is it is it coming out of a Democratic term when you have more discontent, or you don't know? Uh, I believe it's not any difference between Democratic or Republican in that case. I think it's it's more of just kind of a general discontent uh, rises up. I saw so it. it's 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 more um, it's it's more general than that. Okay, so let's I don't think that they necessarily. You know, if 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 you're if you're more conservative uh, and things are going wrong, you're more likely to blame the Democrats for it. If you're a liberal, you're more likely to blame the Republicans for it. So it, it, it does set off a whole set of issues. But I don't think that they, and interestingly enough, they don't seem to, to blame one party or the other more, as far as I know. Right, but, but, but again, according to your book and according to your theory, if you're in a time of history, as we are now, when you have polarization leading to discontent, in an environment where there's income inequality, that is ripe for the development of third parties. So we're there. Right. But you have some notions of what, what this third party should be doing. So first of all, you suggested you should a third party should not just be in the business of putting forth, let's say, a pet issue, like an environmental issue, and allowing themselves to be co-optive. A party has to be broader in their approach to uh, government, so to speak. So what do you want your third party to look like in that regard? Well, I mean, I would actually say what I want to see more out of a, a, a third parties is is viciously attacking the major parties, really pressing in. I mean, the look you can have uh, you can have these kind of issue based parties by all means, uh, but I'm not sure in the American context that you're going to get that much out of it if you're trying to really disrupt the system. What you have to have is a party that comes in, it has to have a clear ideological stand. It has to be distinctive from the major parties. So that's number one. And it has to be so it's distinctive enough that it's hard for the major parties to then just simply co-opt it. And then it has to challenge them very, very directly. So if you're talking libertarians, libertarians at this point really need to be attacking the kind of, of corruption we're seeing right now in the, the Trump administration. This is, its, this is its part of its ticket right now. And you can't look at it and say, well, Republicans seem to like that. Uh, Republicans support Donald Trump. You have to look at it and say, okay, I'm going to guess that that's going to crack at some point. And we need to be the people who capitalize on, on that. No, that's an excellent, excellent thought. Um, another thing you point out is that uh, we said there's been this uh, lack of resources, whether it was right. the financial or the attention of the media. As I've been preaching, and you're preaching to the choir here with me, the Internet and social media puts you into a whole new environment that you can leverage and not have to have the same type of historical resources. So how is our new party going to do that? Well, I think the way you do it is is you start uh, copying the uh, Obama campaign from 2008 and the Bernie Sanders primary campaign from 2016. There's your uh, there's your uh, example. I mean, I think the the for me, I'm looking at this and saying, okay, why is the innovation coming from the major parties? The innovation needs to be coming from the third parties, or they should be ones driving it. You know, look at this. This is, I mean, look at why. Well, first of all, number one, in the Internet, you're talking about niche audiences. You know, as a third party, you do not need 25% vote, right? You need 10% vote. Uh, 
You need some sort of a shift that, that shakes things up. And you need to reach people who are not being reached that you're not reaching through the major media. So this is how you go about it. You go about it by trying to get stuff out there that smaller websites, smaller news, and by small, I don't even necessarily mean small, but not NBC News, right? Smaller websites put out that other people push through on social media that circulate that way. Right? That's what you're trying to do. You're trying, you've got to circumvent the, the, it's no longer even the current system. You have to circumvent the old system and you have to innovate. Treat yourself like a startup. We're a startup. We're, we've got this new product. Uh-oh, there's this group called Microsoft. How do we get around Microsoft? Okay, the Libertarian Party is the most successful third party right now. Uh, but the Libertarian Party is still a third party. It has to look at itself and say, we're the startup. How do we knock off the Republicans? We don't have to take all the Republicans. We only have to take some of the Republicans or independents who used to vote for the Republican Party. That's the way that you have to do it. I'm going to add one more thing before I forget. Uh, the, one of the biggest indicators of where the third parties are going to be supported is where the younger people are. Right? The youth vote, I mean, people love talking about the youth vote in an ideological sense, but here's the important part. This seems to be the indication of change, one of the indications of change coming. Younger people are much more open to, to third parties. They need to be a target audience. And on top of that, the way you reach them is you go through things like social media. You go to where your audience is. So there's multiple reasons why uh, this kind of innovative change has to come. And it basically comes down to third parties have to try stuff and try stuff aggressively. And whatever catches, that's what you use. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned millennials. I spent a lot of time on my show talking about demographics. Uh, we've had Williams Fryan, William Fryan from the Brookings Institution to talk about projections and where we're going. Because I think these millennials, as you say, they, they may be voting for parties right now, but people are doing research and finding they're not wedded to parties. They can move away from the parties pretty quickly. And they I, can move away. They're probably the number one. Uh, they probably are the future of third parties. Right. Right? And they are, right, and they are now, I think, the largest generation in the country. I think they've surpassed my generation. So, so, so demographically, you've got a lot of movement there. And I think what's going to happen is this generation is, is seeing government not working. For right now, they're willing to pick Republicans and Democrats. But there's a point in time, and this, this is a little bit beyond your income inequality thing, there's a point in time where they're going to wake up and see that my generation has stuck them with a very big bill. Right. And they're not going to want to pay that bill. And they're going to look at the two major parties, and the two major, two major parties will not know how to solve that. So whether it's income inequality or waking up to the fact that we've handed this national debt bill to them, I think that can be an impetus to really drive a third party. And, and as you point out in your book, we, we, don't, we might have four to six parties. We might have a couple parties coming from the fringes, or maybe we'll get one coming back in through the middle. But I think it's dem the demographics are essential to understanding where this could happen. Well, another way to look at it is, is you know, they're not all the same group of people. So what you could have is, is a lot of young people who are unhappy with the Democratic Party from the progressive side, 
and saying, okay, I've just simply had enough of these guys. You could have groups of people who are who who see you, you know, make the argument you make about the debt. You can have groups of people who basically consider themselves centrists and are frustrated with the system uh, the way that it stands. There's multiple ways that this could play out. But I think what I like most about what you said, and is an important way of looking at it, is is you have to see it as it's almost like you can see that there's cracks and you can see the cracks developing. So you can see that the house of the two-party system is not nearly as stable as it used to be. And so what you have to do is you have to go after those cracks, right? If you're trying to damage it, you go to where the damage could be um, reached easiest, right? And you can't sit and wait and say, um, hey, wait, you know, they're all voting Republican, so why are we bothering right now? You have to take the guess that, that, that what we're seeing right now is exactly the way that you put it, I think. It's right now they're voting. A lot of people are voting Democratic and Republican, but they're pickable. They're, you're going to be capable of pulling them away. And so the question is, what's it going to take to get them away? And you have to innovate. You basically, we're going to find out how it works when it happens. So two other things in your book, and I don't know how well you know your book, but I'm going to page 126. <laughs> Should I pull out the book? I have one right next to me. And, and, and at the bottom, it's almost as if it was a footnote, and you throw it in here, and I think it's incredibly essential. You point out that new parties, I'll read it. It says, new parties, especially those that rise rapidly, can self-destruct. And the notion here is they don't appropriately institutionalize. They don't set up a framework that can survive. How can we get our third parties to focus on something like that up front? I'm so glad you picked that out. I know that that, that, that actually is, is, is something that I've studied for, for a long time, is this phenomenon. Uh, but what happens is, is, is the way to look at it is often what happens when a, and this is globally, when a, a smaller party emerges, often they just bust out into the scene. The, into the scene. They didn't just, you know, they don't just climb up slowly. It happens, it seems like, overnight. And the problem is that, you know, and in some ways that's the most effective thing. You just, you're, you're suddenly in the game before anyone knows how to react to you. But the problem is that, that this is a structure of a bunch of people who are often activists or people who have been working kind of as, you know, um, working, doing third-party stuff on the side, and suddenly they're in the middle of this giant game. Suddenly they're building up their party rapidly. Oh, my God, we need to get people. We need bodies on the, the ballots. We need them now, that kind of thing. And that creates a possibility where it creates, it makes it easier for these professional politicians to come back and knock them back down. Uh, and, and, you know, take everything away from them. So what the, the solution to that is effectively to be preparing for that moment beforehand, right? This is probably the best that you can do. You can look at it and say, okay, what happens? We hit a stride. What happens? You have to, I mean, you don't have to put a lot of time into this if you're a third party, but you have to be thinking about it beforehand. Right. That's if success comes and success comes quickly, how do you maintain it? And a lot of that is by having a pre-structure set up. And, and I know some third parties have tried to do that, uh, maybe not, I don't know how successfully. Uh, by the way, some of my former students at uh, Columbia University 
are actually trying to start a third party in Europe right now. It's called Volt. Oh, okay. I don't know if you've seen that or not. And uh, I don't know enough about what they're doing, but I, I, I'm trying to hook up with them to understand if they're going to avoid some of these traps that you're talking about. Now, right. you also mentioned, again, on page 126, my favorite page maybe, this notion yeah. that, you know, you have these activists and they're not seasoned. And you have to have some seasoned professionals. But most of the seasoned professionals are already owned by the Republicans or the Democrats. So how do you find these seasoned professionals that are going to come in and calm the waters and set the direction? Well, I mean, to some degree, one option is actually to, you know, if, if you get strong enough, is to, in fact, steal them from the Republican and Democratic parties. Uh, politicians are going to be... Politicians will do whatever it takes to keep themselves in power. This is our running assumption, which works very nicely uh, by us and the political scientists. This is the easiest way to understand uh, their behavior. And so what happens is, is if there is an opportunity, right, if an opportunity comes, if they're better off, they think, by joining the Greens or the Libertarians or some party that we don't even know about, uh, that is what they're going to do. Now, you'll notice when I'm saying this uh, that, that this is very not idealistic way of looking at third parties. This is another thing that, that third party activists have to give up, I think, is the idealistic view that you know, we're like the German Greens from when they started, that we're going to be much, much better people than the Democrats and the Republicans, uh, and we'll never be professional politicians. And the answer is that you're, you're competing in a very difficult situation. You have to, you know, you, you basically have to prepare yourself to become a real political party. And, and, and if anything, you know, killing some, some of the idealism is, is not a bad thing to do uh, right now. Yeah, one of the things I write about in my books is that you don't start your third party by trying to win the presidency or even win Congress. You may just pick out a state or two and attack at the state legislative level, and you, you just start lower, and you build a farm system, so to speak, and you build this kind of professionalism at a lower level, and then you can attack uh, later on. So let me ask you this question then. I actually like that analogy a lot. And then and let me follow that further. Okay, where do you build the farm team? Well, you start looking at, well, at what states do we already see movement of third-party activity? which means you probably go somewhere in the West. You know, you're, you're a lot better off building a third party in, let's say, Colorado or Utah than, let's say, well, Georgia, or, or even, let's say, uh, I'm picking states from the top of my head, uh, New Hampshire. I'm just picking one that's a really not the best place for third parties. But yeah, you're thinking strategically. So that makes complete sense to me. So, uh, again, time flies when we're having fun. Uh, just one quick question and a quick answer if it's okay. If you, were, you knew people who wanted to start a third party, how long would you tell them to expect they've got to be in the game and pursue this until they actually get to the point where they'd be successful? Is it four to six years, eight to ten years? How long of a timeline do they need? Well, I'm hoping it's more like if you're starting something new, I'm hoping it's more along the lines of, uh, four to six years, it, it really, the, the thing about this is what, the thing is that what we can expect is that, that something is going to kick in, 
right? It's almost like you happen to to land on the slide that goes the fastest. You you if if it comes, it's going to come in a in a wave probably, and in that situation, it could happen at incredible speed. It could you know. On the one hand, you could have something like the libertarians, where the libertarians have been working since 1972, slowly building themselves up. At this point, we're talking decades of work. That's possible. But it's also possible that out of nowhere, you know, somebody comes out or a group comes out and they, they catch fire. And there's no way to predict this whatsoever. Well, Bernard, you're, you're a great guest. Thank you for doing two shows here in one day. Uh, and for our viewers, I know you've already said on the other show, uh, you can find your book, The Demise and Rebirth of Third Parties, on Amazon. It's the best site. So we're going to refer it to everybody. And uh, we know you have a new book coming out in a year or two. We want to have you back when the new book comes out. Thank you. Oh, I've enjoyed this tremendously. So, yeah, I, I would love to come back. Well, thanks for watching. Uh, Professor Thomas has been a great guest. Uh, read his book. Uh, jump in here. And, again, uh, whether you want to read his book or my book or all the books, I want you to think in third party. Because the two parties we have right now are not getting the job done. And uh, we got to get the job done. There's too many problems here. Remember, if you're not part of the solution, you are part of the problem. Thank you.